whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The theme of this gospel, this uh, verse um, that I've selected is the theme of scandal, um, as the old uh, translation sometimes rendered it. Uh, the underlying Greek word, scandalizo, uh, here translated as causes to sin. I think um, when we think about scandal, the way we use that word in uh, modern English is actually almost the opposite of how it's meant in the scriptures. So when we say, oh, what a scandal, or I'm so scandalized, what we're communicating is that I've assessed that thing to be morally wrong, and I judge it as wrong, right? And there's even sort of, can be a judgmentalism, like looking down like, oh, what a scandal over there. Um, scandal, being causing to sin, being caused to sin in the scriptures, um, is, is actually the opposite, is different than that, it's that the inability to assess the moral situation rightly, in fact, to be led astray by what has happened. And we know that because Jesus says the object of scandal is the little ones who believe in me. Now, clearly that includes children. He's just talked about children as we looked at uh, last Sunday, the serving children. <coughs> but in light of the reference to those who believe in him, and the fact that the disciples are called to serve the little ones, I, I think this phrase, little ones who believe in him, means all Christians who are still being formed, whose consciences are still being formed, which is, if we're honest, most of us. So Christians um, who are led to believe, uh, to, to stumble, the, the image of scandalizing is literally like being tripped into a pit. Being led into sin and having our faith dampened, having faith dampened. Um, so scandal can be um, done in two ways, either actively or passively. Active scandal is teaching someone to sin. And this can be done um, in different ways. One, by just sinning brazenly in front of them. If someone knows you're a Christian and you're just sinning brazenly, going against God's will as he's revealed it, and your conscience and sinning in front of them, you're actually teaching, well, this sin is okay. Um, one uh, example that I'm ashamed of in my own life is that there was a season after college where I rejected what God had said about coarse speech and swearing, and I, I swore a lot. Um, and then a few years later, the Lord convicted me, and I repented of it and sought to sort of change, have him change my behavior. Uh, but then later I heard my brother, my, my literal brother in my family, swearing a lot. And then he even told an anecdote about something I said once, which was full of swears and I just realized, like, I was the one, here I was, claiming Christ as my Savior, and my speech was just telling him, oh, this is okay. And I led him into sin. So not only was I sinning in my speech, I was then actually compounding the evil of it by leading my brother into coarse and wicked speech. So it can be done by example. Um, it can be done by suggesting or encouraging someone else to sin. We usually kind of culturally phrase that as peer pressure. Right? When the sort of says, oh, go ahead, go, just do that thing. If it's wicked, that's, a scan that's scandalizing someone else. We also do it when we sin against somebody else. Um, in the, 
when we sin against someone else, we're sort of teaching them, like, as well as that the sin is okay, um, but creating in them a sort of impressed habit of sin. The most clear example of this would be uh, abuse. Right? That, that, that when someone is sinned against with abuse, psychologists tell us the habits that are formed in the life of that person follow the patterns of the abuse. So there's active scandalizing. There's also passive scandalizing, which is just approving sin. Not doing anything wicked yourself, not telling someone else to do it, but just approving of it in, in speech. Calling what is bad, good. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah very clearly on this front. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good. Woe to those who call evil good. And it doesn't have to be an active naming. The last sort of um, iteration of uh, scandalizing I wanted to mention is um, silence in the face of error. Ordinarily, silence is construed as consent. And so um, if there's something that is wrong, whether in morals or doctrine, to just sort of sit by and just let it pass by uncommented, it can be scandalizing. It says, well, yeah, that's okay when it's not okay. Romans 14.22 says, Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And approval can be with silence. The result of scandalizing is it does spiritual harm to the person that has been scandalized. Right? It hardens their conscience, which pours water on the fires of faith, which the trajectory of which is the deadening of faith. And ultimately, the rejection of God. Thanks be to God, the ultimate destiny of other people is not in our hands. Right? By his grace, the person that we have scandalized may be brought into the light and may repent. Thanks be to God. But the punishment for tripping that person into the pit is very great. Um, I've never ground uh, flour with a millstone, but the pictures in the books make it look like an enormous, large, heavy stone. And Jesus says it would actually be better to have that put on your neck, which would be crushing enough, and then put to the bottom of the sea than to trip someone into sin, actively or passively. Jesus says, um, temptations to sin are sure to come. Like the, we're gonna, Things are going to be coming against uh, conscience and faith one way or another, but woe to him through whom it comes. And then Jesus um, sort of then widens the teaching, not just about the grave um, consequences of scandalizing someone else, but then sort of widens it to just sin generally and teaches about our life before God generally. And he speaks about sins that we do with our hands and our eyes and then sins where we go somewhere to do it with our feet, right? Feet that take you places. And the point of this teaching about chopping off your hand and ripping out your eye isn't self-mutilation. That's not the point. Um, and I'm, we don't have to rely on our own judgment for that fact. Actually, at the greatest council of the whole church, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325, one of the disciplinary canons, there was a few kind of wrong-headed zealots who had actually literally chopped off their hand. And they said anyone who mutilates themselves under sort of false pretense of obedience to this verse is anathema and excommunicated from the church. They like made it very clear and severe. But like, no, no. The point of this passage isn't to mutilate yourself. The point of the passage is to see the thing that's worse than mutilation and, and have your life be affected by it. What's worse than the things that Jesus says? Hell. Hell is worse 
than these things. I, I always sort of feel a bit sad when it's sort of a standard kind of point of cultural mockery I've learned here down in the South, maybe around the whole country, but you know, everyone people sort of teases like the hellfire and brimstone preacher. Like, oh, it's all hellfire and brimstone over with the Baptists or whatever. The reason it makes me a bit sad is because teaching about hell with an element of strong warning is a part of Jesus' preaching. And, I mean, I, I assume that what's being condemned there is a sort of falsified, dramatic version of that, which is worthy of sort of, you know, not of uh, being caref- cautious about, but with, with no added drama, with no um, exaggeration, Jesus preaches about hell and says, be concerned about this. Better to have an eye ripped out than end up there. He explains what hell is in verse 48, um, the fate of the unrepentant sinner, where their worm does not die. And I've always wondered about the there, because I think when you hear that verse read, you think T-H-E-R-E, but it's not, it's T-H-E-I-R, where one's own personal worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And I think, we, if you're like me, I hear these verses, and it's almost like in my subconscious mind, I deliberately don't want to let them sink into my mind too much, because I think we know how scary it is. I think we should let it sink in just a little bit. I think that's the Lord meant to communicate these words. And so just think about a time you've burned yourself, and just on your thumb or your hand or whatever, and imagine that feeling forever. The fire isn't quenched. It's, a, it's a, an unimaginable quantity of pain. And the worm was interpreted by all the church fathers as a figure of guilt, uh, sort of the guilt of conscience. And so in the same way, the image is that of a worm eating up the flesh inside a corpse, right? They're being eaten up and hollowed out from the inside with guilt forever. Jesus is using graphic imagery to actually scare us a little bit. And to teach us that this would be our fate, an undying worm that is ours personally, and an unquenchable fire forever if he hadn't rescued us from that place through his own sacrifice on the cross. I think I struggled for wondering for a while, like, why do we call Jesus Savior? Like, it's, it's such a sort of poetic word, but like, why that word? And it's because you're saved from something. And it's not just bodily death, although he saves us from that too. It's actually an eternal torment on the other side of bodily death that he saves us from that he saved us from when he died on the cross for us, that he saves us from present tense when we cling to him by faith. And this is why the church always invites us, um, our prayers, in sort of the twin key of thanksgiving, that that is not our fate and destiny because of his great mercy and acting on our behalf through his son on Calvary, and repentance, to say, no, we continue to long for your mercy, Lord, that we won't end up where their worm does not die and the fire isn't quenched. It is the case that um, I see the dominant key in which the gospel is presented as w- is one of winning admiration from his love. Right, His kindness leads us to repentance. Right? But we, we're not to sort of seek to obey God just out of fear. What the primary motive the scripture presents is actually love. That in response to his great love for us, we would love him back. But the Lord knows the complex of our psychology because he made us and because he sees us in our brokenness. And so as well as holding out sort of 
the promise of infinite joy and peace and reward and bliss and reconciliation to God and Him, there's also on the other side, in case in a moment of temptation, the delirium that can come from repetitive temptation sometimes, to remember that on the other side of not obeying is a worm that doesn't die and an unquenchable fire. And Christians who trust in Jesus, who aren't worried about accidentally, oh, am I going to fall into hell tomorrow? You are secure in Jesus' hand. Knocking papers over here. Maybe I'm becoming a hellfire and brimstone preacher. <laughs> Knocking papers over. Um, we're secure in his hand. But I think even in the very center of his loving gaze, it's right to remember an appropriate, not a, not a hypochondriac fear of hell, but an appropriate fear that there's also a hell that really exists and he's really rescued us from. And if we stubbornly and willfully turned our back on him until our dying breath, could very well be our fate. So it's not, a, it's not the primary key in which the scripture presents our response to God, but it is there as a sort of secondary theme, which Jesus clearly references multiple times in his teaching for us to remember. So it's a gloomy Sunday this morning, um, both in the epistle that we heard in James that begins with woe, and in Jesus teaching us about hell. And I think in our sort of um, positive psychology age, we run from gloom a little too much. It's good to have a little bit of gloom. The scripture clearly presents it. There's something that we um, would be incredibly gloomy about if Jesus hadn't intervened in our life. And that even having Jesus' cosmic intervention in our life is still uh, an existing fact. Which in the moment of temptation, the Lord has, has used it in my life. In a moment of temptation, to remember, I don't want to so harden my heart especially in scandalizing somebody else. And if someone knows you're a Christian and they see your brazen sin, it scandalizes them. Uh, I, I don't want an unquenchable worm, an unquenchable fire and an undying worm. I want mercy and peace with God through Jesus Christ. Amen.